Now, at this point in the service, as we always do, we turn to God's Word and share something from it, challenge, word of encouragement, whatever it may be. Let's just pray and ask God to help us to understand what he wants to say to us this evening. Lord, thank you that you continue to speak to us day by day if we're ready and willing to listen. We thank you that you've spoken in many ways and supremely through your Son, Jesus Christ. So as we focus on some of his words, we pray that these words may come home to us with clarity and conviction and with power from the Holy Spirit and that we too might confess that Jesus is Lord. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Let me begin with two symbols or images. First of all, a dove and a sword. Which of these two symbols or images would you associate with the word religion? I guess a lot of people instinctively would say the dove, the symbol of all that religion and that all religions should stand for, peace and harmony between people and nations. However, others would say the sword, the symbol of what religion has often caused, war, conflict between people and nations. So, while religion should lead to peace and harmony, it is often degenerated into war and conflict. Now, if you think that, can I challenge you this evening to think again? Did you know, for example, the record of the Bible is to be believed that the first murder in human history was caused by religion? When Adam and Eve, the first parents of the human race, were thrown out of paradise, their worst loss was not the beautiful exotic fruits that they freely ate from the trees in the Garden of Eden. No, their greatest loss was the intimacy, that intimate relationship with God for which they had been created by Him and which they had enjoyed before they had rebelled against Him. And so, their sons, Cain and Abel by name, sought to re-establish contact with the Creator. The elder brother, Cain, worked with the soil and he brought some of his produce as an offering to God. While his younger brother, Abel, who kept flocks, brought an animal sacrifice to God. Now, that's religion. In fact, it's two kinds of religion. Produce from the ground, an animal from the flock. And God accepted one offering, that of Abel, but he rejected the other offering, that of Cain. The result was that Cain was very angry and very upset about this. But God said to him, Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But instead, Cain did what was wrong. 
and attacked and killed his brother. The first murder in the first family caused by religion. I guess these might have been the headlines if there'd been any other people on earth at the time to read the newspaper. Murder in Mesopotamia, Cain kills Abel, dispute over religion. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that this is a good thing or that religion is a bad thing. Rather, what I'm saying is that conflict and even murder is an inevitable consequence of religion, of human beings seeking to establish contact with God for there is a right way to approach God and a wrong way. And depending on which way you choose, disputes inevitably follow. Now, maybe you aren't convinced. Perhaps like many people, you would want to focus on someone closer in human history. What about Jesus? Surely you say, of all people, Jesus came to bring peace on earth. Did not the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove when he was baptized at the beginning of his public ministry? Surely the last symbol you would associate with Jesus is a sword. And that is what you might think until you actually begin to examine the record in the Bible, in the Gospels, of what Jesus actually said. And that's what we've been doing on these third Sundays this year. Kind of asking a question. You'll see it on the notice board outside, although it's kind of slipped a bit on the wall. If everything Jesus said were true, just suppose for a moment, if it really is true, would it make any difference? And if so, what difference would it make? And today we come to something which Jesus said, which directly relates to our subject. Jesus said on one occasion... I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Isn't that surprising? What on earth did he mean by it? Why did he say it? Well, we need to find out by looking at what he said in context. So if you've got a Bible, and if you're not, there are Bibles in the pews, turn to Matthew's Gospel. We're going to read some verses, and then I'll comment briefly on them. Matthew chapter 10 We'll read from verse 16 through to verse 39. This is part of a longer message that Jesus gave to his 12 chosen disciples when he sent them out on their first mission, warning them of what they were to expect. Verse 16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as, as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, 
nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now here are the verses I want to focus on. These are specific instructions applying to those disciples, but the principles are the same. But notice now it says, whoever, literally everyone who, acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, if you've never read the Bible before, I would suggest that most people thinking what they think about what Jesus said would be rather surprised about his words. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, the idea here of a sword is not just an instrument, a weapon to kill. The idea is of a sword that chops things in half, that divides things up into two. And the coming of Jesus, Jesus says, my coming will act like a sword. It will separate people out into two parts, depending on their response to me and what he said. And here in these verses, if you look closely at verses 32 to 39, Jesus gives here three demands which divide human beings depending on their response, which will divide you on your response to what Jesus says in these verses. Here are the three things. First principle is acknowledging Jesus, verses 32 to 33. In normal English, to acknowledge someone means simply to indicate that you know that they're there. For example, I attend some function and I see you over the room there, crowd of people, and maybe I nod my head or smile or even wave. Hi, nice to see you. Or if I'm really enthusiastic, I might even go up to you and speak to you and shake you by the hand and say, nice to see you, how are you doing? Or I might see you, well, I probably wouldn't do this, but... I could see you and decide to blank you out and just look straight through you and ignore you and pretend you weren't there. But the words that Jesus uses here, acknowledge me or disown me, are much stronger than this. In the older versions of the Bible, the word acknowledge is translated as 
confess, which doesn't mean to own up to something, but to affirm or profess something you believe or someone you believe in. And this affirmation has two aspects to it. First of all, it has to be made verbally. That is, it's something you say. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, to acknowledge him, you need to say so. First to him, as you commit yourself to him in repentance and faith, and then to other people, to let them know, I'm a follower of Jesus. And that leads to the second aspect of acknowledging Jesus, which is not just to be made verbally, but publicly. That is, others need to be present when you affirm or profess Jesus. He said, you need to acknowledge me before men, and women of course. So what is it that a follower of Jesus is affirming verbally and publicly? Simply what they have come to believe, in the depths of their heart, that Jesus really is who he claims to be. What the New Testament calls confessing Jesus is Lord. That is the Son of God come in the flesh. In the letter he wrote to the Christians in Rome, the Apostle Paul, special messenger of Jesus, summarized it as follows in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now notice the principle now. For it is with your heart that you believe, that your heart is your whole person, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, put right with God, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now, if this is true, in order to help us get off on the right foot, as it were, to begin as we need to go on, the Lord Jesus Christ gave his followers a way in which they could confess him verbally and publicly. And it's taking place this evening. It is baptism. He told them to believe and be baptized. You become convinced that Jesus is Lord, that he is who he claims to be. You believe in your heart, and as a means of letting everybody know about it, you are baptized. And baptism includes a verbal confession of faith, which is why we ask people either to say something about their faith, or, you'll see later on, to respond to some questions about their faith, to affirm publicly, verbally, I do. And this is followed by the visual act of being baptised, which is a visual illustration of what it means to identify with Jesus. As you go down under the water, it's a symbol of dying with Christ to the old way of life, and as you come out of the water, straight afterwards, uh, it's a sign that you're raised to a new life. Now, of course, this is only the start. But you need to start somewhere. To start as you mean to go on. You need to continue to confess Christ, both verbally, what you say, and in the way that you live. If you confess that Christ is Lord publicly, you say I'm a Christian, but you don't live in a way that commends that, that contradicts that, then you are denying Jesus. Like the man who on his wedding day promises to forsake all others and keep himself only to his wife, who continues to have affairs with all sorts of other women. It's a contradiction of what you've said. Now Jesus says the only alternative to acknowledging him is to deny him or disown him. It doesn't mean, of course, 
if you have ever let Jesus down or failed to speak up for him, you're disqualified forever. The wonderful record in the Gospels is of the Apostle Peter, who denied Jesus three times on the night when he was betrayed and arrested, and yet Jesus forgave him and restored him. No, just as acknowledging Jesus means an ongoing commitment to him, so disowning Jesus means a persistent refusal to face up to the facts about who Jesus is. Now let me speak to those of you who have come to this church regularly. Maybe you've grown up in this church and you know all the facts about Jesus. You've got all the evidence. Now, do you acknowledge who Jesus is? Or do you deny him? You can't sit on the fence. Now the obvious thing here as you look at this is this is no casual matter for some kind of religious discussion. Jesus says it's one that will have eternal consequences. But what he says... Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but whoever disowns me, I will disown before my Father in heaven. In other words, my eternal destiny, when I stand before God the judge of all men at the end of my life, my eternal destiny, along with that of every other human being who's ever lived, will depend on my response to Jesus in this life. Have I acknowledged him or am I disowning him? Now, if you really understand this, you'll be saying, as people did in Jesus' day, who on earth is this Jesus? Who does he think he is? Claiming to be the one who decides the eternal destiny of every human being. How can an uneducated teacher from Nazareth claim that God is his personal father, to whom he can speak a word which will condemn or save you on the day of judgment? And once you get to this point, you begin to understand why Jesus said he came to bring a sword. For he's the most divisive person in human history. There is no other room for other ways to heaven, other guides or gurus who lead you to God. If the claims of Jesus are true, if you believe they're false, then you disown Jesus. If you believe they're true, Then you confess Jesus. And the first followers of Jesus were so convinced about this one fact, they were prepared to be flogged, persecuted, excommunicated from their communities, and even to be murdered and killed and martyred because they believed. On one occasion, one of them stood up in front of those accusing him, the religious authorities. He said, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So, here's the first question. Have you acknowledged Jesus? That's his first divisive demand. But there is more to follow. Notice the second thing that follows, which is not just acknowledging Jesus, it is loving Jesus, verses 34 to 37. Now the sword begins to penetrate even more deeply into our closest human relationships. Uh, Jesus says, quoting from an Old Testament prophet called Micah, who we studied a few weeks ago in the evening service, that his claims are so divisive, they will divide human families. Look what he says. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now this does not mean that Jesus deliberately sets out to split up families or demands like some cults, that his followers break all their ties with their families. Rather, Jesus says, his coming will cause division between those who acknowledge and believe in him. 
and those who deny and refuse to believe in him. He's such a controversial figure. There's no neutrality about him. One New Testament scholar, Don Carson, comments on Jesus. Prince of peace though he is, the world will so violently reject him in his reign that men and women will divide over him. And this division of opinion and allegiance can occur in the closest of human relationships, even within family units. In the worst case scenario, where following Jesus is against the law of the land, as still happens in some countries today, things can be even worse, as Jesus warned his followers earlier. What terrible words. Brother will betray brother to death. A father is child. Children will rebel against their parents. Have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Such things happen in the past. They continue to happen. I can think of countries where I live, where I've lived in the past, where this has still been the case. And they go on happening wherever following Jesus is politically incorrect. Popularity and Jesus rarely go hand in hand when the message of Jesus is clearly understood. Now, whether or not we face such extreme reactions within our families or not, the bottom line is not just where our loyalties lie, the bottom line is, who do you love the most? I'm trying to think of an illustration. This is a weak one, but try and it may help you. Think of, for example, of a young man, uh, maybe an only child, his parents' pride and joy. One day, he meets a young woman and falls in love. And eventually, they get married and set up home together. A few days after they return from their honeymoon, the phone rings and his mother says, Son, we expect you as usual this evening for a meal with us as we've always done and I've cooked your favourite dish. However, his new wife is also expecting him for a meal that evening and she has cooked him a dish, maybe not even his favourite one, but anyway. What should he do? Who takes priority? If they cannot come to some arrangement whereby he gets two meals on different nights, he has to make a choice. His life has changed. Someone else has come into his life who he loves the most and who takes priority. It's a matter of love. And so it is to a far greater degree with the relationship you enter into when you acknowledge Jesus and become his follower. Love for Jesus takes precedence over all human loves and relationships, even love for a wife or a husband. Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother, his son or daughter, more than me, is not worthy of me. Now again, at this point, I hope you're getting the point, this is a pretty controversial character that can demand this kind of allegiance and love from his followers. Does it not smack of fanaticism? I think of a church in our hometown with which we had connections many years ago. For many years, frankly, it was a social club. All sorts of activities, including Sunday services, with a veneer of religion. One day, they called a minister who actually believed in the Bible and in what Jesus taught and preached. And he began to teach and preach it in the church. And people began to get really upset. One of the leading members of the choir said to me, and I can still remember his words, the trouble with the new minister is he takes his religion far too seriously. He's a fanatic. 
And he was right. Such a person is a fanatic unless the claims of Jesus are true. Then you can't be too fanatical about living Jesus. Another writer, Leo Morris, comments, No mere man has the right to claim a love higher than that for parents and children. It is only because of who he is that Jesus can look for such love. It's only because of who he is that Jesus can look for such love. So, what about you? What about me? Who do you love the most? Is Jesus the love of your life? Is Jesus the love of my life? If so, then I need to respond to a third demand of Jesus, which also divides like a sword. Acknowledging Jesus, loving Jesus. Notice finally, coming towards the end, following Jesus. You see, the greatest cost in following Jesus is not in human relationships that might suffer, painful though that is. No, the greatest cost is personal. It is so costly to follow Jesus that Jesus describes it as taking up your cross. Anyone who does not take up his cross, verse 38, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, taking up your cross doesn't mean what it does mean in common English parlance. You know, you've got a cross to bear, you know, because you suffer from some illness or whatever it might be. It might be serious, but that's that's not what it means here. No, it's far more radical than that. When Jesus said these words, his followers would know exactly what he meant and they would, they would almost gasp in horror. A person carrying his cross in the first century, or the cross beam for the cross, accompanied by a small group of Roman soldiers, if you were out in town or in the countryside and saw this group of figures coming along, a man in the front stumbling along with a cross beam across his shoulders and a group of Roman soldiers escorting him on the way and maybe giving him a prod or two with a spear, you knew that he's heading on a one-way journey to execution. Now Jesus uses this striking picture to describe the cost of following him. Not necessarily a literal crucifixion, though it was for many of his followers in the first century and the centuries that followed, but it is death to personal ambition, death to personal agendas, death to self. Jesus describes it as losing your life. Now, when you understand this, again, you begin to think, why would anyone respond to such a challenge? It would not make good copy for a political agenda or manifesto, would it? But Jesus says, paradoxically, this is the way, the only way to find life. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you try to hold on to your life, to live for yourself, you will in the end lose everything. As Jesus famously said, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? But if you lose your life, that is if you follow Christ, you entrust your life to him, then you'll find your life, the life that God intended for you, the life for which you were made, the life of knowing God and his son. It's a different quality of life. In fact, the New Testament calls it eternal life. Not just in length, but in quality. It begins when you follow Christ and baptism is a sign of starting out. But it's a life that continues even beyond the grave. And Jesus said on that day of judgment, if you've followed me, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. And my Father says, who is this one? He will say, this is one of mine. This one belongs to me. This is the life that Jesus offers to everyone. 
and anyone who responds to his call to count the cost and to follow him. Now this is radical teaching when we take the words of Jesus seriously. If this is true, think what a difference it was going to make to our lives and to our eternal lives. Have you started out? Almost finished. Let me say something in conclusion. I began by talking about symbols associated with religion. A dove and a sword. And we've seen that although Jesus came to bring peace, his coming produced conflict. But amazingly, surprisingly, neither the dove nor the sword is the symbol of the Christian faith. No, the symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. You see, Jesus was no bland figure who all the religious, spiritual people thought, this is wonderful stuff. He was so controversial that he was killed for what he stood for. But that was part of God's plan. Jesus went to a cross, bearing our sin, taking on himself the wrath of God that we deserve, in order to bring us life, to reconcile us to God. And so the Christian faith is focused on the cross of Jesus. Again, we think of crosses as being something nice that you wear around your neck. You see them in churches, nice smooth polished wood, like the one on the screen even. But in the first century, it was your means of execution. In fact, the greatest source of ridicule and offence in the first century against the Christian faith was that they worshipped a man who was crucified on the cross. Yet rather than downplaying it and putting a bit of spin on it, they continued to preach. One of the first Christian preachers, Paul again, summarised it like this. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That is the message we proclaim. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. So what is your response? What is your response to the cross of Christ? Have you come to the cross in repentance and faith? And what is your response to the Christ of the cross? The one who said these things and claimed these things. Either he is who he claims to be and his words are true or he is not. The challenge is to take them seriously. To acknowledge Christ, to love Christ, to follow Christ and to have all your confidence placed in him. This is the message clearly stated, the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Well, let's sing about that. We're going to sing about that confidence that we have.